Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, it's me, Sam, Kai, and DR talking about the underreported news of the past week. And then I sit down with directors Stanley Nelson and Marco Williams of the History Channel's new documentary, Tulsa Burning, the 1921 Race Massacre. My advice for this week is to not let things go unchallenged that are in your space. I was uh, in a conversation the other day and somebody said something that was sexist. They did. And it was just like, I don't, I do not want to have a battle right now. Like, I really don't. Like, I'm not interested in it. I also cannot let you just say things like this and go unchallenged. Like, that's not cool. Uh, In that moment, it was the middle of the night. We were going somewhere. And it's one of those things that like, Part of what it means to show up and love people is to not let them get away with things that we know are wrong. That's my advice for this week. Let's go. Welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. Y'all, my news today is from New York Magazine. It covers a really beautiful, insightful piece on the mayors of Oklahoma's black towns. And so as we celebrate the centennial events around the 100 years since the 1921 massacre, I really wanted to bring to light, you know, kind of the history and the richness of history when it comes to black folks, but past and present actually in Oklahoma. So what a lot of folks don't know is that there were actually 50 plus settlements founded in Indian territory after the Civil War that attracted black folks from across the South. And it really offered, you know, obviously a chance to build communities that were safe from violence and terror. Well, you know, that was the idealism behind these settlements. And so what ended up happening is that, you know, there were founded black towns across Oklahoma. So we hear a lot about Greenwood, actually not enough about Greenwood, but as we're starting to hear more about what happened in Greenwood, particularly those events that happened on Memorial Day weekend, we're starting to also understand the history across Oklahoma of so many black towns that are still existing today. You know, what's happening is that a lot of folks who grew up in towns, whether it was Tallahassee or or Bowley in Oklahoma, grew up there, left, um, and then decided to come back to, to really preserve these towns, preserve the history, preserve the culture. But what's happening is that a lot of towns are suffering from governmental neglect, economic isolation. And in Tallahassee, which is the oldest surviving black town in Oklahoma, they were actually at risk of losing water services because of an overdue bill. So these towns don't have, you know, a strong tax base, and a lot of them are relying on grants and grassroots funding to help cover basic infrastructural needs. So it's just just really this piece is an interesting take on, you know, one, giving us an awareness around the history of these black towns um, and the need for creating safe space um, and the need for creating conditions for economic prosperity and understanding now that that need is as great today as it was 100 years ago, but just the challenges to that and now the challenges that are coming to these black mayors um, in these towns across Oklahoma. So check the article out. It's stunning, brilliant photos of these incredible mayors, um, but just also dig in a little bit more to understand um, this really fascinating, insightful history that comes out of Oklahoma in particular. Yeah, check it out, y'all. My news is about uh, the role that black psychiatrists played in uh, social change and societal change after the killing of Dr. King. 
So after King is killed, they formed the Black Psychiatrists of America, and they were grappling with institutional change, how we think about institutional racism, and importantly, the role of American psychiatry in perpetuating some of these harms of racism. So they go in May 8th, 1969, they break into the trustees of the American Psychiatric Association. While those folks are eating breakfast, they have a list of demands, including you know more Black people on the committees and task forces and leadership and a whole host of other things. The thing that really stuck out was that one of the guys who helped start it, uh, Chester Pierce, the founding president of the Black Psychiatrists of America, he was really worried about TV. He was convinced that TV was actually communicating and encoding these ideas of racism in homes. And, you know, at the time, in 1969, Almost 95% of American homes had TV sets. And as you can imagine, the programming, there wasn't a ton of programming. So people saw mostly the same thing. You know, he says in 1970, many of you know that for years I've been convinced that our ultimate enemies and deliverers are the education system and the mass media. We must, without theoretical squeamishness over correctness of our expertise, offer what fractions of truth we can to make education and mass media serve rather than oppress the black people of this country. So he's convinced that TV matters. He also studied childhood education in addition to being a psychiatrist. He was starting to work on a children's show. He had a three-year-old daughter of his own, and he was going to be a senior advisor on a show that was in working with two other creators. This show was conceived as a way to bring remedial education into the homes of children of color and disadvantaged kids. Like That was the premise of the show. The show, as you know it, and I know it, is called Sesame Street. And this show was a game changer, the most successful children's show ever. It was, Sesame Street is a street in an inner city neighborhood. As you know, it's it's multiracial, multi-ethnic characters. And they worked on this sort of hidden curriculum. Also, interestingly, this guy, Chester Pierce, coined the now famous term that you know, microaggression. But he was instrumental in helping to shape what we know as Sesame Street. And that was great. It just like, it was so interesting for me to read about the way that black people started to organize after like racial terror, the killing of Dr. King, and understanding that we have to fight this fight on a host of levels. So there are people who are like, you know, DeRay, the street's not my place. And like, it might be somewhere else. For the psychiatrist, the street wasn't their place, but they organized within their field and they use that expertise to change other fields. Like that is the best that we can ask that people use their gifts to change the space that they're closest to. And uh, that's my news. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to 
risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. My news this week comes out of the Washington Post, an article entitled Free Black Men and Women Founded in Eastern Shore Village to Avoid Attention. Now their descendants want to share their stories. And this is another one of those pieces of history that I didn't know about, um, but that I was really excited to learn about. It's about a small town in Wacomico County, Maryland called San Domingo. And for 200 plus years, it's been an enclave of a few hundred African-American residents, which is a little, um, it's interesting because the Eastern Shore of Maryland was a place that had many, many plantations. And this town, this place was established as a settlement of free black men and women in the early 1800s. In fact, it's believed to be the first and the oldest such community in the state. Um, This was a place where um, people farmed the land. People owned hundreds of acres of land. They set up local businesses. They built a church and a school. They raised their families. And they created a close-knit, thrifty, and self-sufficient community that coexisted peacefully with the white towns around them well into the mid-1900s. Many people believe that this town was founded uh, by a man named James Brown and a handful of other people who came to the area by boat after a bloody slave rebellion in Santa Domingo, Haiti around 1800, and hence the name of the town is San Domingo. And what's interesting is the name was, according to the article, a tacit warning to intrusive white people. So these are black folks who are fleeing 
a bloody slave rebellion, a slave uprising. They go to Maryland to create their own community and hang a sign out on the front saying to white people, we are rebellious and San Domingo, which I love. It was a community that kept a very low profile. Many of the residents worked in surrounding white communities, but their lives centered on supporting one another. They talk in the article about the values that undergirded this community, an independent spirit. They didn't waste anything. They talked about the fact that um, somebody was available to provide every important skill needed in a town. And this idea of their lives centering around one another and supporting one another is really a revolutionary act in the time that this was that this town was incorporated. In fact, there's a piece uh, about how their their living situation was so idyllic that they had little experience with the realities of Jim Crow, which were happening all around them. At school, uh, one of the descendants says, or one of the uh, folks who grew up there said, at school, everybody there was totally committed to us succeeding. We were blessed to go there. It was an all-black school. They provided their own teachers. And you know, once segregation ended, the school was desegregated and so it closed down. Young adults began leaving for greater opportunities and everything began to change. There's a book about this community uh, by Mary Klein called Their Roots Were Free and you should pick it up. Um, and in fact, while they were flying under the radar and staying far away from people to live their own life on their own terms, there are now efforts underway by a local foundation, the John Quinton Foundation, to preserve San Domingo and to tell its stories. One of John Quinton's descendants says, it had virtues that should not be lost. We wanna make sure people remember what created this community that we love. This story resonated with me in so many different ways, and I shared it with a group of friends, and one of my friends wrote an email back to me, and I just wanna share it because it exactly captures a lot of what this made me think. She says, I have so many thoughts about this piece. Number one, these pieces of history have to be told so we can see that there are and have always been models for us to thrive, and thriving was centered around our collective responsibility to each other. I love that. What I found in my time of leading and leadership is that the only way you do big, hard things is when you do them together. And we've lost, as African-American people, we've lost the spirit of collectivism. And so this idea that, you know, in the early 1800s, we established our own towns, we did everything for ourselves, that speaks volumes to me. The second thing my girlfriend said is, do we just need to buy some land and live in the cut? <laughs> And that is a great question in this at this particular moment in these United States of America. The third thing she said, and she was speaking explicitly about the school piece, is nothing can beat a community conspiring for your success. I love this story. And this is this is what we don't do with our young people. There is not a conspiracy for success for our young people. We're so busy pointing out what they can't do and what resources we don't have and what things we need instead of really tapping into their brilliance and cheering for them. And so um, this article, the existence of this town, the efforts to preserve its legacy really just warmed my heart and reminded me that black people have been doing amazing things on our own terms since we got here. Um, and that is something that is another piece of history that we're not always taught.
Hey, it's Sam. And for my news this week, I want to talk about Canada, where the remains of 215 Indigenous children were found on the grounds of the Kamloops Indian Residential School. Now, the term Indian Residential School may not be familiar to you. It was part of a nationwide program in Canada that was a white supremacist project designed to erase the culture, the language, the religion, and indeed the people of indigenous communities across the nation of Canada. Children were removed from their families, from their communities, and required to attend Indian residential schools all across Canada, where they were beaten, abused, disallowed from ever speaking their indigenous languages or practicing indigenous religions, and where they were forced to undergo extreme trauma in the interests of imposing a white dominant culture upon them. And indigenous leaders are calling for a national reckoning across Canada to account for the damage that was done from this program. And there are many, many more children likely who, are, who have died and are in unmarked graves that have yet to be discovered, have yet to be reported on but that families and communities in indigenous communities have known for quite some time and have sought answers for. But it turns out that this isn't limited to Canada because this program that Canada had was actually modeled after the United States. It turns out that in the United States, the government built 357, quote, American Indian boarding schools all across the country. And at one point, by 1926, as many as 83% of all Native American children were removed from their families and communities and required to attend these boarding schools, where just like in Canada, they were subject to abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. They were denied access to their families, to their language, to their religion, all part of a program to erase their culture and replace it with a white dominant culture. And we still don't know the full human toll of that program, of that policy. The government funded and built these schools. They were often operated by Christian missionaries, churches. And in many cases, there are records of children being sold to families from these schools, just sold to a random family. There were records of children mysteriously dying, children being put in leg irons, being tortured, being abused. And many of us were never taught this in school. So as we think back on the history, some of the darkest chapters of our nation's history, as we talk about the 100-year centennial of the Tulsa Race Massacre, I'm reminded of how many more things we still have yet to learn that our country did, and how many more things we need to expose, we need to acknowledge, we need to lift up, we need to hear from the communities that experienced them. How many more things we need public policy interventions to invest resources and supports and remedies and reparations to account for. It's way past due. Now let's get to work. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Introducing Hearts, the Tema Cardiovascular and Metabolic ETF. 
Invest in companies we've identified as leading the charge against heart disease, diabetes, and obesity. Revolutionary innovations in areas such as weight loss drugs are paving the way for transformative treatments. Visit us online, temaetfs.com slash HRTS. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's investment objective, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus and summary prospectus available at temaetfs.com. Read carefully. Investing involves risk, including possible loss. Foresight Fund Services, LLC. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. On the centennial of the Tulsa Race Massacre, I sat down with award-winning director Stanley Nelson and Marco Williams of the History Channel's new documentary, Tulsa Burning, the 1921 Race Massacre. The film premiered on Sunday night and connects the events of 100 years ago to how they relate to modern situations as recent as the killing of George Floyd. Here's our discussion on how they managed to pull this all together, working from historical records that were mostly unpublished and voices silenced. Here we go. Uh, So Stanley and Marco, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Pleasure to be here. Well, I'm excited to talk about Tulsa burning. There's been so much conversation recently in the public conversation around Tulsa. More people understand it. Social media has like brought it back as a story that people should know. What led you to to this documentary? Like, why was it? Was it because of the anniversary? Were you planning this way before the anniversary? How did you get to the story of Tulsa? Yeah, well, I'll start. I came on first. I was contacted by a production company called Blackfin. And they kind of had already developed the project a little bit. And Russell Westbrook was already attached. And, you know, Russell Westbrook, Hall of, not Hall of Fame yet, but all-star basketball player who uh, spent a lot of his career in, in Oklahoma. Um, and he really wanted to make the film. And uh, they contacted me about making the film. And um, I had a little bit of a history uh, with Greenwood because we did a film a few years ago called Boss, which was a history of African-American entrepreneurship. And uh, there was a seven minute section in uh, in Boss and I I knew that wasn't enough and that that there was so much more to be said about uh, Tulsa and Greenwood. And so I jumped at the the chance uh, to make the film. And uh, always we were making the film to coincide with the 100th year commemoration of of the massacre. And so that was about a year ago and um, I brought on Marco. Um, we had worked together on a film, Tell Them We Are Rising, about the history of uh, historically black colleges and universities. And so um, that's how we teamed up on this one. You're right that the centennial of the massacre has drawn a lot of attention. And I think that it's really good that there's drawn a lot of attention. And it also says a lot that a lot of attention hasn't been 
spotlighted on Tulsa previously. I learned about Tulsa in, in 2005, 2006. I was making a documentary called Banished that looks at communities that, in which white people expelled their black neighbors. And those communities remained all white to this day. And people would always talk about Tulsa as an example of white people expelling or destroying a black community. It didn't fit into the narrative that I was doing for Banished, but it had always been in my consciousness. So when Stanley reached out uh, to me, I was, I almost want to say eager, because I think it's such a significant part of our history that to have the opportunity to be part of trying to bring this further to light uh, was an opportunity I couldn't turn down. There we go. So one of the things that was really powerful to me about what you all put together is that there are these stories that I, you know, I've been told as an organizer, as people have been thinking about how to deal with the police there. And, you know, it's impossible to go to some parts of Tulsa around the organizing community and not talk about the race riots. But there were so many stories that you surfaced that I didn't know about. Like I think about Smitherman. I didn't know, I'd never heard of him. Uh, he wasn't like a figure that anybody had ever told me about. Can you talk about how, uh, was it, was it hard to find some of these primary documents because you also have a lot of primary documents where they just like sitting in people's basements and all you had to do was ask and like people actually just had collected stuff but like nobody had asked for it what was that process like you know smitherman is a you know significant yeah like you said you know here was this quintessential race man understood where voice and power for an African-American in the African-American community lay, it was in the black press. And certainly Stanley can amplify that because of his film, Soldiers Without Swords. Yeah, it's very hard to find primary documents. And as you see, we really utilized you know three. That's about it. I mean, it's ironic that the person who owned the newspaper didn't have a lot of photographs taken of himself. He was out there documenting our community. So that was a real effort to locate even those few images of him that we use uh, multiple times because of the limitation of what was available. We knew going in that that there were um, still pictures of uh, the building of Greenwood, and we knew that there were uh, movies, actually, uh, of the building of Greenwood, um, and that, that there were some pictures of the destruction and also movies taken after the, the massacre. And we didn't know how much, you know, and in and, and, and making the film, we found out that there was a huge amount. Huge amount is, is relative, but for an African-American community in, in 1920, 1921, 1919, there was a huge amount of material that uh, we could really not only tell the story, but, but show you, show you the building and the pride and show you the, the devastation of, of the massacre. And that's one of the things that um, makes uh, the story of Greenwood and Tulsa very different. The other thing that I learned that I didn't know was uh, was that night that it seemed like the black people had sort of repelled the white people by the train tracks and really the white people were just organizing to come back and be even more heinous. Uh, and there was, what, what I think this stuff does really well too is remind us of like the evil underbelly of white supremacy, right? Like there's just, this is an evil, like the turpentine balls or turpentine, I don't know how you say it. I didn't know they were throwing turpentine balls on people's, that's like so wild. What surprised you in this process? Like I have to imagine that you learned something as you were putting this together more than you knew before. That story, right, that the first night of the onslaught is often really just told as though white people just devastated the community. And it's understandable because when you see the aftermath, it, it's clearly that they did. But and so this was one of the one of the things that you noted, the 
African-Americans lining the railroad tracks and repelling the white people defending Greenwood was something that was uh, gigantic in some measure because it showed our determination, um, our capacity. But as you noted, it also uh, highlighted that it incensed the white people to then you know, it was almost like bloodlust at that point. They couldn't be satisfied with the fact that they had killed some, that they wanted to lynch Dick Rowland, but they now were going to just destroy the community. And so all of the resentment that they had been building up because of the successful creation of Greenwood, Black Wall Street. So that's one of the things that that was really satisfying as a storyteller. It's not the thing that would stand out to me that I learned in making the film, but it's one of the really satisfying story elements. And because it represents, again, our determination to try to defend our, our community or the African-Americans of Greenwood. I was not there in 1921, so. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that made me think about it is that the African-American community had the audacity to organize to defend themselves. And maybe, you know, and I don't know this, I'm just really thinking about this now, but maybe that was one of the hugest, biggest sins that African-Americans could commit you know, in the eyes of white people, right? You know, to organize, to defend, right? You could, you could, you know, sit on your porch with a gun and defend your own property, you know, in many cases. And, and you know, it's an, a little known fact sometimes that African-Americans did that over and over again in the South. But to organize, to defend yourself, to organize, to defend this young man that they were gonna lynch was like the cardinal sin. And, and that I think, you know, uh, set, the white folks into a frenzy. And that's what it was. It was like a killing frenzy. And it was also really uh, interesting to learn that they were organized. You know, it wasn't just, you know, one person or, or, or a mob, you know, crazy mob. It was an organized surrounding of the African-American community and at a signal going in with guns blazing and destroying it and then killing people and then burning the thing to the ground. And you see that, and, and it's really visceral because you see it in the pictures. And one of the other things that you all did for me that I didn't appreciate was, I, I'd imagine that the local news wouldn't be able to write about it. Like I was like, you know, white people control the press. You helped me realize like, it was like literally a blackout. Like it was like a don't write about it, don't talk about it, don't even like the blocking of the black nurses. I'm like, y'all not even let people come in and help the people. I'm thinking about how you think about the role that the media played in perpetuating the violence over time. Like by not letting either people come into Greenwood and like help people or come into Tulsa and like help people recover. Like, were you able to see the long tail of that? Like what it meant that both the stories were hidden for so long, but that white people organized to block any support from outside people. Yeah, like how did you understand that and putting this story together? It's an important fact that there was kind of a blackout on news, that the white papers did not cover this event. But also to know that that white papers in the South did not cover lynchings, you know, the thousands of lynchings that went on, you know, for over 100 years, you know, that, that white papers didn't cover it. Uh, Emmett Till's uh, murder and, uh, you know, what happened to him was only covered because his mother insisted, she had to insist that his body come back to Chicago. 
And then out of Chicago, you know, Jet Magazine published the pictures and talked about the murder. So that that Tulsa, and we have to remember this, is awful and probably the worst of the violence, uh, single violence uh, committed against African-Americans. But it was just one of many, you know, and, and that happened over and over and over again. And it never was reported by white papers in the South. And thank God for the black press because it was the black press that reported it. A.J. Smitherman, who owned the black newspaper in the community, was accused of inciting the riot and fled. You know, so the, the black press was no longer there. So the instrument that would have amplified it within Greenwood, within Tulsa, was no longer available, right? So there's that. Suppression comes from terrorism. If you've had your entire community devastated As an African-American, you're going to be, dare I say, circumspect about how you talk about it, right? That's re-traumatizing yourself. You're not certain whether they'll come back across the tracks the next night or months later, right? That's what terrorism does. That's why lynching has occurred. Lynching is a form of terror. We're going to do this, and that's going to silence the rest of you. So the fact that it was able to be suppressed for decades is part of the story, right? It's, it's very much part of the fact that in, not until in the late 80s, early 90s, did it really come out and it came out because of survivors who were interviewed. But I just want to say one thing, and it's referenced in the film, Mary E. Parrish, who lived and survived the massacre, started writing a book, The Events of the Tulsa Disaster. First-hand account. She never published it. And I, I'm speculating here, but not publishing it. It was hard to get published, right? Because we know uh, of the level of suppressing this information of this reality. So I think that that's uh, very much the case, that there was not the voice of the people and there was the concern or the internalizing of could you be terrorized again. One of the the main things that this kind of terrorism does is it tries to say to African-Americans that we can do whatever we want to you. That's what existed during the time of enslavement, right? We can do whatever we want. And that's what happened in the years after. Okay, now you're no longer enslaved, but we can still do whatever we want to you. And that's what exists today right, with the police actions and nobody you know, or very few people ever being prosecuted. We can still do whatever we want to you. That's, I think, in, in some ways, the real kind of psychological lesson that's behind the, these incidents from enslavement through Tulsa until today. And what about the unmarked graves, the mass graves? Is there uh, an effort to find all of them? Do we know where more of them are today than, than we did before? Like, what does that, the scale of the impact, do you think that we understand that well? You know, we knew going into the film process that we wanted the film to uh, live on at least two levels. You know, the story of 1921 and proceeding at the building of Tulsa, the, the destroying of, of Greenwood is one story, but also a hundred years later, 2020 to 2021, would be the search for remains. We believe that that a couple of hundred people may have been murdered and, and may be in unmarked graves or thrown into the rivers or whatever. But we knew from the very beginning that we wanted to tell two stories. One, the story of 1921, and two, the story of, 
of what's happening today. The actual number is left to speculation because you can see the total destruction of the community. The actual number of people who were killed and murdered is not known. Between 100 and 300 is the number generally offered. And where those remains live, where those remains exist, where those remains remain is unknown. Stanley noted that there is there are people who say that they saw bodies thrown into the Arkansas River. But the search in this part of the cemetery, and there's another part of the cemetery, and there's yet another cemetery, that's based on, ironically, that there were funeral records. Bodies were put into unmarked caskets or coffins and just buried. But there was a person at the funeral home who who kept a, a record, basically. So there's always been a sense of where they might be. And back to your reflection on suppression, this was suppressed for years. The fact that there was a sense of where there might be mass graves and it was suppressed and it was prevented from happening over and over and over the excavation. So it's still ongoing. They're going to resume, uh, I think, in the coming uh, months to uh, continue to search for other mass graves and will begin the arduous process of trying to uh, make identification first and foremost. They're going to look for, you know, burns, bullet wounds, the evidence of the actual murdering of people. And then with that, they will try to make determination of gender and then hopefully through DNA to make a specific identification. Now, I wanted to ask, I know it's I know that we're in a Zoom COVID land, but were you able to screen this for any survivors? No. In fact, there was an an aspiration to do a screening in Tulsa uh, with the survivors, but as you noted, COVID makes it very, very complicated since the survivors are all over 100. Right. It's not like you really want to bring them into a large, you know, and, and to that point, you know, we had just had discussions to interview one of the survivors, but it was in November of 2020 where vaccines didn't exist. And so, again, acting responsibly, we did not push that because it, as important or as great as that would have been. It was not more important than the the well-being of Mother Randall, who was the person we had considered. Well, we consider you friends of the pie. Can't wait to have you back. Thank you, dear. Thank you. This was great. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pods of the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Sinyangwe. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. 
No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.